If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 131, that'll be our sermon text for this morning. It's a fairly short psalm. Uh, As you know, we've been working through the psalms. If you've been here, you know we've been working through the psalms now for uh, a few months. And we haven't been hitting every psalm, but we've tried to hit sort of representatives along the way to get a sense of uh, the whole book of psalms. And we're nearing the end. Uh, there are only 150 psalms, so we're at 131. Uh, we'll, we have just a few more to go before we finish up our, our series in the psalms. But before we read Psalm 131, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not uh, left us to ourselves to figure out life on our own, but you have given us your word Uh, First and foremost, that we might see Jesus and know him and trust in him and receive your gospel, Uh, but also that we might learn how to live in light of that gospel. And Father, we pray that this morning as we look at Psalm 131, you would teach us, teach us about Jesus, teach us how to live in light of Jesus, uh, teach us how to, to rest in your grace and walk in your grace day by day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, and do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Is your soul hungry? Dissatisfied? Discontent? Disquieted? My soul needs quieting. There are different ways that we can be restless. There there could be something you want but don't have, and you're restless to get it, like a spouse or a job. There could be something that you don't want but feel stuck with. You're trying to get rid of it. Pain or suffering or difficulty. There are lots of things that I want but don't have. Uh, Sometimes I want peace and quiet but don't have it. Sometimes I want the latest gadget, the latest eye product. Sometimes I just want a little more time. The thing I most often want but don't have, the thing which drives me crazy that occupies my thoughts, that sometimes keeps me awake at night, is, is understanding. Uh, I know that that probably isn't your problem, but um, that's my problem, one of many, uh, is that I, 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 I want to I figure things out. Uh, I want to understand. I want to know. I want to comprehend life and God and the gospel and the church and grace. Um, I want to understand and see the beauty of truth. And, and, and at times, it, it is downright controlling. Uh, I know it seems silly, but at, at times, I am sinfully occupied with grace Uh, I'm more concerned about figuring it out than working it out in my life. I get stuck in my head. Uh, 
And then I read these words in Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And I think, no, (laughs) I am restless and hungry and preoccupied. There are different ways of being hungry, of course. You might be hungry for knowledge or, or food or sex or money or power or peace and quiet or recognition or rest. Is your soul hungry? Hungry like a nursing babe, right? Ravenous to eat, rooting around to suckle. Our psalmist this morning knew what it was like to be hungry, but he also knew what it was like to be contented, rested, and quiet. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What does it look like to quiet your soul? We see three things here, uh, three simple things in uh, this very short psalm. To be quiet is to have a humble mind, and a contented soul, and a servant's heart. Now we'll see as we walk through these things that a humble mind, a contented soul, a servant's heart, these things uh, cannot come from yourself. You can't work them into your own heart. Uh, They must come from Jesus. They are first in Him, but they can be in us by His grace and by His Spirit at work within us. So first, let's look at a humble mind. Verse 1, notice where David, who wrote this psalm, notice where he begins. He begins with with God, O Lord. Of course, the the proud person begins with self, is occupied with self, is always thinking about self. But David begins with the Lord. He orients himself toward God. He turns toward God, as it were. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. It's the language of of self-exaltation. Lifting up oneself. To be lifted up can be a good thing, of course. Uh, The Lord is lifted up and seated on the throne, Psalm 113. He is exalted in justice, Isaiah 5. God exalts the righteous, Job 36. He will exalt and lift up his servant, Isaiah 52. So being lifted up can be a good thing, but then there are those who lift up themselves or are lifted up or exalted in their own eyes. Um, The the Prince of Tyre was such a man. His heart had become proud, lifted up because of his wealth. His heart was proud and lifted up because of his beauty, Ezekiel tells us. But such lifting up oneself brings judgment in Scripture. God said in Isaiah's day, the, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, it's the same word, lifted up, Walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. Or the Proverbs warn, uh, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, lifted up, but humility comes before honor. And all of those verses use the same word as here, lifted up, whether they translate it exalted or some other way. But David says, my heart is not lifted up. David is saying, I, I don't think too much of myself. Uh, now, David, of course, was king. He was a great man. I mean, we read about David in the books of Sam, Samuel and Kings, and we marvel at him. But he still wasn't God, and he knew it. 
David is saying, I, I know I'm not God's gift to the world. He's not denying his strengths, but he, he knew that the world does not revolve around him. And the second line in, in verse 1 then takes this one step further. My eyes are not raised too high. Here's another word for, for elevating something, but this time it's not David's heart, but his eyes. Not his internal thinking, but his external gaze. David is saying he, he doesn't stick his nose up in the air and look down on people. It's a good thing, too, because the Proverbs tell us that God hates haughty eyes. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, and the first one is haughty eyes. Those who go around looking down their noses at people around them. Now, in general, I think we, you know, we, we have an idea of what it means to be proud or arrogant or haughty or stuck up. But David explains it like this. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What does that mean? Well, what are the great and the marvelous things that, that do not occupy David? Um, in, in Scripture, it, th- those words are always used to talk about God. Right? God is the one who does great and marvelous things. In fact, those two words often refer to the great and marvelous things God did in bringing his people out of Egypt. This is God's signs and wonders. This is his mighty deeds and his saving acts. And yet we're also told that he does great things, unsearchable, marvelous things without number. And so this is also God's daily acts of providence and grace, the way he cares for his children moment by moment. There are two things to be noted about these great and marvelous things. First, in doing these great things, God stands out. At the Exodus, God says, Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. Psalm 71 says to God, You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? Psalm 72, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Psalm 86, You are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And so David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What does that mean? Well, again, think about this in contrast to the king of Tyre. To him, the Lord says in Ezekiel, because your heart is proud, lifted up, and you have said, I am God. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and not God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. And God goes on to say in Ezekiel, you will die like any other man. And and so to, to occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us, on the one hand, is to try to play God in the world. It's to try to control life, to, to get it to serve you. It's to boast in your achievements and claim your own greatness. It's to lift yourself up and try to be as God. And that could be as simple as trying to rule the playground or boasting in your academic achievements. It might mean fretfully trying to control the details of life so it doesn't fall apart, or coolly posing for your next selfie to grow your own personal online kingdom so everyone will worship and marvel at you. Now, we should each strive to be the, the, the best that, that we can be in whatever we are called to do. We should strive to be all that God has made us to be, to hone and use the gifts that he has given. And, and humans can do, right? People can do some pretty incredible things. But we're still not God. And we should not seek to be God, to play God, to boast as if we were God. 
Compared to God, of course, we're, we're limited and, and, and weak and powerless. And anything that we can do, we can only do by his power and his permission. He alone is God. There's another thing to mention about these great and marvelous things. First is that God alone does them. But second, we cannot comprehend them. Job 37, verse 5, God does great things that we cannot comprehend. Later, Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. That doesn't mean we don't behold these things, right? Psalm 119, uh, open my eyes that I may behold marvelous things out of your law. We behold God's great and mighty deeds. We marvel at his saving works. We stand in awe of his daily grace and providence, but we do not and cannot comprehend them. We do not have a, a comprehensive understanding of what God is doing. In fact, sometimes we have no clue what God is doing. And so we simply worship. We marvel. But sometimes we forget that God's great and marvelous deeds are incomprehensible, and so we begin to pry. Right? We, we begin to, to guess at the mysteries of life. We try to discern His providence. We want to know. We want to understand. Now, now normally... That happens when, when bad things begin to happen in our lives. We start to ask questions, which is fine. Questions are good, but we begin to demand answers. God, when will the pain stop? God, why did this happen? God, why did this happen to me and not her? Why did this happen to her and not me? Or what will happen to my children when they grow up and leave home? What will happen tomorrow? How will this all work out? Whose fault is it? Where was God when I needed him? We forget Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do them. Now, maybe you are are restless this morning and you're restless because you're trying to play God in your life, to control life, to take matters into your own hands. Or you feel you must, you must figure it out. You must solve the mysteries of life. You must figure out why God allowed this or that to happen to you or to your spouse or to your child or to your friend. Where does the quiet come from? How do we get a, a humble mind? Well, we get a humble mind as we see the, the one who humbled himself and in so doing performed what is really the mightiest act of God, the most wondrous work of the gospel. See, Jesus humbled himself in taking the form of a servant. Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." See, Jesus had every reason to be proud, right? Every reason to think highly of himself, every reason to look down his nose at us. And he had the ability to do great and marvelous things, to play to the crowds, but he didn't. In fact, he tried to keep his miracles quiet. He wasn't trying to gain fans. He humbled himself. He didn't grasp after glory, even though it was his by right. And yet it was just Jesus' act of humility that was great and marvelous. This was God's mighty deed, right? This was his saving act. In Jesus humbling himself at the cross, God was doing what no mere man could ever do, paying for the sins of the world, dying as the Lamb of God. 
But just because Jesus humbled himself, God exalted him. And in his resurrection, we see the hope of all those who humble themselves before the Father. As Peter put it, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You want encouragement to be humble? Look at the cross and look at the resurrection. See the true greatness in humility, true power in weakness, true love in the face of hatred, and marvel and be humbled. And in that, see God exalt the humble. And know that the only way to true exaltation is humbling yourself before the Lord. Right? Have this mind in yourself that was in Christ Jesus. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Rather, David says, I have learned to be with God in trust and contentment. Which brings us to the next point. To, 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 quiet, to be quiet is to have a humble mind. And second, a contented soul. Uh, verse 2 says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And David creates two contrasts here. Uh, Im implicit contrasts, but contrasts nonetheless. David has a calmed and quieted soul. It's not that he's calmed and quieted his life, but his soul. You know, much of our lives are not in our control to quiet. God's providence is one of those great and marvelous things of verse 1, right? We can't understand it. We certainly can't control it. Maybe your life is nuts. You know, Deborah and I, I think, on a daily basis, ask, why is our life so nuts? If you have any answers, please let me know. You know, the gospel doesn't always make life easy. It doesn't take away the crazy in your circumstances. But it can take away the crazy in your head. And the psalmist says, I calmed and quieted my soul. There's another contrast here. This, this time, not between his circumstances and his soul, but between his soul before and after. David has calmed and quieted his soul, which seems to imply that it was not always calm or quiet. He's saying, at one point, my soul was neither calm not, nor quiet. It was hectic and loud. There were thoughts bombarding me from every side. I couldn't stop thinking about this or that or the other thing. I was worried. I was afraid. I was scared. My life was crazy. My head was spinning. But now, I'm like a weaned child. It's a contrast between a, a weaned child and a nursing one. A nursing child is often neither calm nor quiet. When a nursing child is hungry, she, she cries. She's thinking about herself, her belly, food. There's no self-control, no restraint, no logical process my mother will feed me and care for me. I need not fear. No, the child is centered on self and desire. And for a nursing child, that's good. The problem is many of us never grow up. The implicit image here is of the proud person who is centered on his desires. He has no self-control, no restraint. If he doesn't get what he wants, he cries like a baby. He pouts. He throws a tantrum. He has not been weaned. A weaned child has learned to put off desires, to practice patience, to say no. The nursing child is controlled by desires. The weaned child begins to control them. The picture here is of a weaned child content, resting on his mother. This is what Jesus encouraged in Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. 
not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, the calm and the quiet come because your Father knows what you need. You can trust him. You can rest in him. You don't have to be anxious or feel fearful. You don't have to, to worry even about your next meal like a weaned child with its mother. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Where are you experiencing discontent and dissatisfaction and, and disquiet? How can you calm and quiet your soul? Again, quiet comes as we look to Jesus. Jesus did not live uh, dissatisfied with life. He was content to, to, to live on the word of God. To hear and do God's word was his meat and drink. After uh, fasting for 40 days, Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. At one mealtime, Jesus insisted, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, Jesus did not pursue the, the praise of the crowd, and he was willing to accept delayed gratification. He headed toward the cross for the joy set before him, Hebrews says. He was content, knowing his father would care for him. Even on the cross, he, he entrusts himself to his father's arms, saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. And because of his work, we can now be accepted as children of the father, right? Jesus was rejected as, at the cross as an enemy, so that we would be accepted by the Father as beloved children. And so we have this model of contentment in Jesus. We, we know that the Father will care for us as sons in the Son because of Jesus. And he gives us his spirit to strengthen us. And one of the, the most misquoted verses in Scripture is, is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In the context, it actually has nothing... Nothing to do with doing great things. It's about enduring hard things. Those are the things that we can do through Christ. We can endure both the good and the bad. So you back up a few verses and Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ. That the, is the secret of facing both good and bad in life. Christ trusted his Father. He makes us beloved children, and he gives us his Spirit to strengthen us by his presence that we might endure. Where are you restless? Is it because you don't trust your Father? Is it because you're trying to grasp for things rather than wait for things? 
Is it because your desires are out of control because you've let them be in control for far too long? Have you not let, yet learned the secret of contentment facing all things in Christ? If you're a, a new student here on campus, you probably have a lot of questions about what's going to happen over the next several weeks, right? Uh, everything uh, from, what co- from what is college going to be like to where do I buy milk? Will I find good friends? Will this be harder than high school? Will I make it? How do I get to my next class? And if you seek to face those things on your own, if, if everything is in your hands, even the little things can produce anxiety and fear and restlessness and anger. We walk skittish or we throw temper tantrums because we're frustrated and feel alone. Our souls are anything but quiet. But if we look to Christ, if we see the one who, like a sheep before his shears, was silent even in the face of his oppressors, the one who humbled himself but was exalted by his Father, if we know we are now sons in the Son, and we look to his Spirit, we can learn to calm and quiet our soul. It's not automatic, of course, right? We, we have to stop. We have to, to take time to look to Jesus. We have to know that we are loved in him and remind ourselves again and again that we are loved in him. We have to wean ourselves off the stuff of this world, not, not rejecting it as evil, but not being controlled by it either. So we look to Christ and we rest in our Father's care. So to be quiet is to have a humble mind, to have a contented soul, and finally, third, to have a servant's heart. You might think that this short little psalm is all introspection, right? That, that it's almost a perverse kind of navel-gazing because the psalmist says his heart is not lifted up, but then he goes on to talk about himself and his soul. And though he talks about himself and his, his heart, his eyes, his soul, he does that for us. Uh, verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David wants to, to give us a picture, a, a model to, to emulate. He wants to encourage trust and hope and waiting on the Lord. And what this means is David really has a, a servant's heart here. He shares his experience for others. It's not just cathartic, right? He's not just trying to get it out. He wants us to know how to have a quiet soul before the Lord. And so the whole psalm is one way that David serves his people. You know, today we might talk about this as a ministry of encouragement. Whatever the case, the truly humble person will not be focused on self, but will look to God and then serve others. And here the, the, here, here the, the quiet, here's the quiet that comes from looking to Jesus then enables us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus who came not to be served but to serve. And as we see the glory of Christ and recognize that we are not God, as we know that we are loved in Him and trust our Father to care for our needs, we are enabled then to take our eyes off of self and put them on others. Philippians 2, again, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this might be big or it might be small, right? But, but when we walk out of church, having received the grace offered in the gospel, we go out to offer that same grace to others, to serve as we have been served. Whatever that can look like, serving others uh, begins where you are, in your home, in your dorm room, in your classroom, in your workplace. Sometimes we think about it as only the big things, 
But it's not always about going overseas or starting a mercy ministry. It, it can be those things. And if God lays that on your heart, by all means, go with it. But it must look like being more concerned about the people right around you than you are about yourself. And while we ought to not to occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us, there are things that we should be occupied with. We ought not raise our eyes too high, but it doesn't mean we just sit around and stare at the dust either. Lots of things are not our responsibility. We, we must entrust those things to our Father. But some things are our responsibility, like loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we trust God for the fruit, no doubt, but we're called to love others as Christ has loved us, serving others in our homes, our classrooms, through, and through our vocations to the glory of our Father. And so as Paul put it, again, do not do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Or as Peter put it in 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Or in other words, quiet your soul, having a humble mind and a contented spirit and a servant's heart, as you look to Jesus, humbled by his greatness, resting in his care, and walking in his footsteps as you take up your cross and follow him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this picture of resting quiet in your arms and in your care. We pray that you would enable us to do just that, that you would enable us to rest in you. Pray that we would rest in you right now, that whatever uh, burdens our heart, whatever uh, occupies our mind, whatever uh, worries us, whatever fears we might have, that we would cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us, that you will watch over us, that you will exalt us and in your timing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.